Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Going Pro Podcast. I'm Lauren Withrow here with Abby Jones. Last episode, we learned about Major League Baseball's strike in 1994. And now that we have news that MLB is going to be back in action, we are talking more baseball today. Yes, yes. And under different circumstances, which is very exciting. Lauren, I mean, we've got baseball broadcasting royalty in the house. I just am such a fan. Um, I've been really excited about doing this with you. And yeah, you live in Chicago. So what are your thoughts on this? I've lived in Chicago for almost a year now. And I've found that one of the ways that I start to identify with a city has been becoming a fan of their sports. And you cannot become a Chicago sports fan without hearing this name. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background on today's guest. He has covered both basketball and baseball. He was the Chicago Cubs broadcaster from 1998 to 2004. When he started working, he was actually working alongside his grandfather, Harry Carey. After seven seasons, he moved to work alongside his father, Skip Carey, covering the Braves. Today, he covers Atlanta Braves baseball on Fox Sports South and Fox Sports Southeast. So this is none other than Chip Carey, and he is here to sing Take me out to the ball game. <laughs> if you want to ruin your podcast, have me sing. Uh, thank you. What a nice introduction. Thank you, ladies. That was very sweet. I appreciate it. Don't worry. We're not going to make you sing. Lauren tries to pull a little <laughs> sometimes in American Idol, but we're already trying to work with the ratings now. Um, so we're just trying to keep the fans on. I love it. That's great. So um, happy belated Father's Day. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, four kids. Uh, one just graduated college. Uh, she's uh, our, our firstborn. Obviously, she was a little baby when I started doing the Cubs games back in 98. Uh, her name is Summerlin. She just graduated with an international business degree at the University of San Diego, magna cum laude. She's employed. She's off the payroll. Thank God. Uh, I've got identical twin 20-year-old sons that are getting into broadcasting. They're at uh, University of Georgia. Uh, and one of them is Harry Christopher Carey IV, believe it or not. And my fourth uh, child is an 11-year-old son who's going to be heading into fifth grade next year. So we're real busy. We run the gamut from 22 to 11. And, uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> we're, we're hurting cats, even at this uh, ripe old age of 55 years old. But it's a lot of fun. Wow, you've really got your hands full. Yes. Yeah, we're busy, especially my wife. Because, again, as you guys know, you know, baseball season, uh, mom has to be mom and dad. I mean, that's the yeah. biggest challenge, I think, is in any of these relationships in baseball. The game gives you so much, but it takes so much away. And by that, I mean, uh, you miss birthdays. You miss, uh, I mean, I never saw the first steps my kids took because I was doing a baseball game in Pittsburgh, for example. Um, there's no bitterness about that, but it's just the reality of the job and the things that we get to do, uh, oftentimes take away from the things we really, really want to do. And that's the life we've chosen. And, uh, obviously it's given us all a great life. It's given us a love affair with the game. Uh, it's given us a lifestyle that most of us could probably never imagine players or broadcasters alike. Uh, but no, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that you'll pay the price and not count the cost. Uh, but as you get older, you start to think about those costs a little more, especially when your kids get older and achieve things like you two lovely ladies are doing. So uh, great life. Wouldn't change it for anything. And uh, again, very proud of my kids and especially my wife, who's the glue that keeps it all together. So we read that um, you refer to your alter ego as Biff Barf. Now, 
Yeah. Being home for quarantine and now with baseball starting, um, yeah. we're curious how he got that name. And also, are you seeing more or less of him now that baseball is going to be back? A lot le- thank God a lot less. Uh, you know, you, I just kind of stole that from George Carlin. Um, you know, it, we we all have kind of our our goofy things that we use and do just to kind of keep our own sanity. And anybody that does broadcasting, I'm sure seen the Mary Tyler Moore show or they see uh, Anchorman with Ron Burgundy. We all have those affected broadcaster voices and start talking and do stupid and mean stuff like that around the house. Uh, it's a great way to get your kids, especially the 11 year olds, to do what you want them to do when you start talking in that Biff Barf type broadcaster voice because it drives everybody crazy. Uh, but most of that's done just for entertainment, obviously, just to uh, you know be silly, to have fun with it, because I think the really successful people in our business are the ones that don't take themselves so seriously. And there are a lot of them that do, um, and that's that's fine. That's how they operate. But uh, I really found that the really successful people in our business are the ones who lay it all out there, warts and all, and have people like them or not like them for who they are, not what the audience thinks they should be. Yeah, and that's such good advice for this industry, too, because I feel like a lot of people see something and they want to imitate it and recreate it. Yeah. And, you know, they never want to find their own thing. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, my dad and my grandfather, look, I was a child of a divorced household. My dad was a child of a divorced household. I didn't know either one of them particularly well until I became an adult, which is which is sad in and of itself. But some of the greatest advice they gave me was exactly what you said. We work in a personality-driven business. And I guarantee you, if you went back and talked to every radio station programmer, every broadcasting general manager of a minor league team on the West Coast in California, Nevada, Arizona, all the audition tapes were guys that wanted to sound just like Vin Scully, right? And who wouldn't want to be like Vin Scully? He's baseball Shakespeare, but there's only one of them. And the advice that my dad and grandfather gave me was, this is a personality-driven business. And to my point I made earlier, uh, warts and all, I am what I am. And more importantly, I know what I'm not. I'm not Harry Carey. I'm not Skip Carey. I was never them as far as their lifestyle was concerned. I'm not them in many of their belief systems. I'm my own individual, and I've got to go about it my own way. And that was, I think, the biggest challenge of going to Chicago because Harry was such an indelible presence in the city and was such a big uh, you know, personality in a big city. Uh, there were many people who expected me to be just like him. I'm not him. I didn't know him. I wasn't like him. And uh, luckily, I had a lot of people who supported me, allowed me to find my own footing and do it my way, as Frank Sinatra would say. And those are the people that have continued to be great professional and personal friends. And I'm grateful for uh, their input in helping me survive those seven years. So how much do you think that you learned from your family and how much do you think that you had to learn on your own? Uh, a lot, a lot in both cases. Uh, as I said, I didn't know my dad and grandfather. Uh, I think there's an impression that uh, I was born with this microphone in my crib and I started broadcasting it too, instead of having a spoon. Uh, that wasn't the case. Um, I knew I had a talent for words. I knew I was a good writer. I loved to read. I was interested in history and things like that. So from a verbal standpoint, I knew that broadcasting would be something I would probably be good at. Uh, my mom's dad was a dentist. I thought about going to medical school. When I was in college, I thought about going to law school. I had a very influential professor at Georgia who almost changed my career path. Uh, and uh, in times like this, uh, there were days where during this pandemic where I was thinking, God, I wish I'd done that. But having said that, uh, you know, they offered me advice in, in the sense that I could watch them on TV. And I just knew from genetics, I guess, what they were going through, what they were thinking about. 
I get to spend two weeks with my dad and go be an intern at TBS and work behind the scenes and understand how a baseball telecast really works. You know, you guys see the audience that is, you see and hear the announcers and you see the game, but you don't think about the director, the, the assistant director, the tape operators, the camera people, the audio people, the engineers, all the people behind the scenes that make that broadcast possible. And I got firsthand knowledge of that. And I think that's been really helpful to me because um, I, I know what the crew goes through. Um, you know, I, they are the, the heart and soul of a baseball broadcast. We're the faces of their work is the way that I put it. Um, so seeing that was a huge advantage, I think, for me in the early stages of my career. As far as learning on my own, uh, you have to learn on your own. Look, uh, Joe Buck is immensely talented. Tom Brenneman, uh, Kenny Albert, uh, Todd Callis. I'd like to thank myself, uh, Jim Nance, uh, Vin Scully even for that matter. Uh, you can have all the talent in the world, but ultimately when that light goes on, you have to be able to do it. And if your dad or your grandfather or your uncle or uh, some family friend gets you an opportunity, that's great. That's all it is, is an opportunity. If you don't do the job, it doesn't matter what your name is. You're not going to stay in the job. So that's what you have to learn and do on your own. You can uh, have a lot of help and you can have a lot of people in your corner, but ultimately it's business. You either do the job well or someone else will. Exactly. As you got started in broadcasting, what were some things that you did to create your own style? How did you come out of the shadow, as you mentioned, of having family in the industry to create your own voice and name? Yeah, luckily for me, uh, my first job as a professional announcer was in basketball. I was the announcer for the Orlando Magic when they began as an expansion team in 1989. And uh, we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have Facebook. So you were there with Shaquille O'Neal? I was there with Shaquille O'Neal. Yes, I was there. But that was a couple of years. That was, yeah, that was a couple of years later, right? The story I tell about that is really simple. I was 24 years old. Uh, like Bob Costas in St. Louis, I kind of fudged a uh, audition tape, sent it to Pat Williams, uh, who had heard of my name from another colleague at uh, Turner, Bob Neal, uh, Pat Williams and my dad had worked together. And Pat told Bob that he was looking for a broadcaster. And Bob mentioned my name. And Pat's first reaction was, oh, my God, there's another one. And Bob said, yes. So I sent him a tape <laughs> and they brought me down for an audition and did some basketball games with Bucky Waters. Uh, and those were the first basketball games I ever did. I guess I could say I faked my way through it. That was a real challenge. It was an advantage, too, because it wasn't baseball, but it was my own. It was basketball. I had to learn on the fly. And the story I tell and the way I tell it was the Magic that year in their inaugural season, I think won 15 or 16 games. I was worse than the team. If they had had Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, I made so many mistakes and did so many stupid things and said so many stupid things. I probably would have. Uh, I would have been fired. But luckily for me, the people in the town were learning about the NBA just as I was. Pat Williams was an incredible counselor to me and let me make mistakes. And I think that's why it's so much harder for a broadcaster like you guys at your age to get into the business and be successful early. You're not allowed to make mistakes. You are expected to be polished and perfect from the moment you get your degree and, and sit behind a microphone. And in my opinion, so much of what we do, so much of the knowledge we gain is following the uh, scientific process, as it will. You have a hypothesis, you run a set of data, and you see if your hypothesis was right. And if it's not, it's not that you're a bad scientist, it's that, it's that you were wrong. And you learn something from that. You learn from your mistakes. And I think it's really, really hard for today's generation to do that in this instant gratification world. So I was really lucky. I got to do basketball. Again, I had a great partner, Jack Givens, who uh, played at Kentucky and played in the NBA for a number of years. And he really walked me through and taught me the game and made some contacts and met the coaches and the referees. And after a while, I kind of developed my own style and my own way of doing things. It got noticed. I was on TNT doing basketball. Uh, then I got noticed by Fox. So it just kind of 
of took off uh, organically because I think I wasn't being labeled as Harry Carey's grandson or Skip Carey's kid. I was making my own way in a small town that nobody really thought much about. So timing was everything. It worked out great. So you said that in this day and age, it's a lot harder for young broadcasters to get started, which Lauren, I don't know about you, but I feel I agree with that. You know, there there's so many people competing for the one spot. So did you have a lot of mentors along mm-hmm. the way? Like what was something that you would give advice to this generation about wanting to get into this industry where there is very little room for error? Yeah, I, the error part is is certainly true. I would say this, though. I think if you're a, a smart, sports-minded female, there's no better time to be in sports broadcasting than now. When you think of the tremendous uh, strides that women have made in our industry, there is no glass ceiling. When you see Michelle Tafoya and you see Robin Roberts and you see so many others who are great broadcasters, irrespective of their gender, who are doing this from the sidelines and the booth, uh, that's that's remarkable. That's a great, great thing. So there are so many more opportunities because there are so many more sports. There are so many more channels. There are so many more outlets for you all to show your expertise and your profession. That part of it's really, really great. Uh, the challenge is, is getting that first opportunity, right? Because as you said, it's incredibly competitive. Uh, my advice is thick skin. You got to nose to the grindstone. You are going to get rejected. You're going to be told no. Uh, Doc Emmerich, Mike Emmerich, who's arguably the greatest hockey announcer in the history of the sport, uh, probably had 20, 30, 40 rejections from every NHL team. He had to go back to college, got his doctoral degree, I think, at uh, Michigan. Go below. Right? They had a class where if you were a student at Michigan – the student got to do the second period of the hockey games for Michigan hockey. Well, Doc Emmerich had been waiting his whole life for an opportunity to be a hockey broadcaster and by fortune going for his doctorate, he qualified as a student. He did the games and someone heard his tape and he got hired after years and years and years of rejection and maybe going into education and getting out of the business altogether. So persistence is a real key. If you have talent, someone will find you. And if you don't believe in yourself, then nobody else is going to. So my advice is uh, I know how fortunate I am to have this gig. And once you get your first one too, you'll realize how fortunate you are. And that will inspire you and spur you on to keep it, keep working harder and keep progressing and keep on shattering those glass ceilings as you rise up the ranks. Talking about getting started, baseball took a hit after the strike in 94. Mm -hmm. In 1998, you came to Chicago to start with the Cubs. Now, during the late 90s, Michael Jordan, the Bulls are owning the city. Full sports spotlight is on them. This is right when you got there. And then now this attention started to shift from, you know, what Abby and I have learned in our research. Obviously, we were one year old at this time, but you know, you came here and then it was Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire on their race for the home run. So was it kind of like watching a Cinderella story when you got to Chicago and were with the Cubs? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was supposed to work with my grandfather. He died. So I went from being his understudy to having to sit in his chair with his partners in his town with his microphone and his team. And again, Harry was in the Hall of Fame at this time and was, as I said, such a huge personality in the city. That was that was really, really hard. But as any broadcaster worth his or her salt will tell you, the big advantage you have when you're entering a new market is to have a good team, or as you said, a team that surpasses expectations. The 98 Cubs weren't expected to be all that great. The 97 Cubs were off. <laughs> uh, but the Cubs had a bunch of veterans who came together and were really good. Henry, Henry Rodriguez, Rod Beck, Mark Grace, Sammy Sosa, uh, Mark Rudzalanek. I mean, guys like that uh, were all 
Uh, maybe Grudz wasn't there, but you, my point is, is still the same. There were a bunch of veterans who really wanted to play well and play well together. And then when the home runs started happening and Kerry Wood strikes out 20 guys in his fifth major league start, all of a sudden the attention of Chicago went from the last dance of Michael Jordan and the Bulls to, hey, maybe the Cubs are pretty good this year. Well, let's see what happens in June. Well, Sammy Sosa hit 20 home runs. The Cubs, I think, had a losing record in June, but were still very much alive in the playoff race and then took off in August and September and made it to the playoffs with the one game, uh, uh, one extra game at Wrigley Field against the Giants. So, uh, yeah, uh, 98 was a Cinderella story. I guess my career in Chicago was uh, intertwined with uh, that unexpectedness. Uh, because people really re- respected the job that Steve Stone and I did. We formed a great partnership and friendship that's still intact to this day, and it happened almost immediately. And we just sort of rode the crest of a really, really good Cubs team in 1998 that not many people expected to be there. And I had nothing to do with it, but I was the, the right guy, the right place, right time, and obviously uh, capitalized on it. So it's been good timing and a walk down memory lane for you, I'm sure, with Long Gone Summer and The Last Dance. So, you know, Mm -hmm. Chicago's been on your mind lately. Um, Can you just explain the electricity of the 98 season? And like you said, you know, you have to take over the microphone that your grandfather used. I mean, that has to be a pretty historic and sobering moment in your career. Yeah, it was hard. Uh, it was hard because, again, uh, Chicago's a, an interesting city, obviously. Um, you have the Cubs and White Sox rivalry. You're separated by geography. You're separated by league. You're separated by allegiance to the team. My grandfather worked for both the Cubs and White Sox. White Sox fans loved him but thought he was a traitor because he went to the north side. <laughs> uh, the north siders were saying, what the hell are we doing hiring this guy from the White Sox? He, you know, he, How's he going to work with the country club? Uh, let's uh, you know, show up at the Cubs game. And if the Cubs win, big deal. The White Sox were so much more passionate about winning. It's said in Chicago that White Sox fans in the old days used to like to see the Cubs lose more than they wanted to see their team win. That was the buzzsaw that I was kind of going into. Then you add in, uh, as you said, uh, shares the same name, does the same profession, but isn't the same guy. And I think there were some expectations that I was going to come in and sing, take me out to the ball game and say, holy cow, and all that <laughs> stuff. If I'd done that, that would have been professional suicide. So I didn't do any of those things. Um, but 98 was a blur. I was still working in Orlando with the Magic, finishing up there. I was doing uh, Fox weekend baseball uh, for their broadcasts uh, out in the studio in Los Angeles. And so I didn't really get into the everyday part of it until May. Um, and by that time, the team was you know pretty good. And, and then we got our rhythm. But obviously, not being uh, around my grandfather and not knowing about the city. I mean, I lived in a rental unit for the, the Tribune provided me because I, I didn't even have time to find an apartment. It was just a a total uh, whirlwind. I guess the way I would describe it is I was picked up and thrown into a tornado and it's fun, fun, fun. And, you know, I just hope to hang on for dear life. And again, the team and the game started ratcheting up and then the history uh, was happening on a daily basis that made the games pretty easy. And because the team was good and Steve and I were good and we were on national TV, we were accepted pretty quickly and pretty solidly by the whole city. Obviously the race for the home run record during that season couldn't have been more entertaining, I can imagine, as a broadcaster or as a fan. Have you experienced any other iconic sports moments that have come close to that in your time working? Where it was two teams in a city like that? No, not really. (laughs) As you said, uh, there was so much angst still around the game after the strike in 94. People weren't coming back. They were still mad. They were tired of the greed, tired of the owners and players fighting over millions of dollars. Sounds kind of familiar, I think. 
you had the Cubs and Cardinals rivalry, which I think is the best baseball rivalry there is. Forget the Yankees and Red Sox. I think the Cubs and Cardinals is the best. You had Sammy Sosa, who was from the Dominican Republic, a shoeshine kid, uh, sold oranges in Santo Domingo, grew up very, very poor. And you had Mark McGuire, who wasn't. He grew up in California, stable family. Uh, both got to the big leagues and both hit a lot of home runs. It was just um, it was just such an interesting dynamic between the two of them. And for the the Cubs, the icing on the cake was that team went to postseason play. The Cardinals didn't. They didn't have a very good team that year. But the race for St. Louis fans was Sammy Sosa hit two home runs at Wrigley Field in the afternoon while the Cardinals played later that night against the Brewers, and he hit two. And that went back and forth all day long, all season long, pretty much starting June 1st. And I think Sammy may have led the home run chase for one day or for half of a day or was tied with McGuire. And there was some around uh, baseball. I thought, wow, maybe Sammy's going to actually do this. Well, McGuire hit five home runs the final weekend against the Expos to, to get to 70 home runs. But it was great theater. It was great for the sport in that knowing what we knew then, those guys helped bring baseball back. They helped make baseball cool again. And they weren't the only guys hitting 40, 50, 60, home, 40 or 50 home runs. There were a lot of guys that were doing that. But the race of those two arch rival franchises, these two guys from far differing backgrounds who really enjoyed the competition head to head as well as the competition between their two things. As I said, it made baseball fashionable again. It made it fun again. And you had people of all ages, all races, all uh, demographics rallying behind their guy and tuning in to watch and see who did what every single day. It was good theater. And it's the kind of theater I think baseball's aching and yearning to get back to, especially now. And uh, I don't want to say that those two guys saved baseball because baseball doesn't need saving, but they certainly made it fashionable and fun again. And uh, obviously the last 25, 26 years, uh, I think we, we've seen the rewards for players and owners alike uh, reflected that way. Going back a little bit to um, long gone summer, you had a heavy role in that which, by the way, congratulations. That was so entertaining to watch. I didn't know what my role was going to be. They just asked me a bunch of questions. And, and uh, I'm, I'm really surprised, quite frankly, that it was received as well as it was with as much as my mug was on TV. So it was, it was fun. <laughs> like you said, it was, it was a great trip down memory lane. And uh, to see those guys in uniform that many of us have probably forgotten about or have been packaged away with season after season, uh, it brought back a lot of great memories, a lot of fun. Yeah, in case you didn't know, the reason we wanted to do this on was so that we could have the video footage for the documentary that Abby and I are putting together. Oh, cool. Nice. I like it. So stay tuned for that, everybody. <laughs> you can be in. Yeah, it's coming in uh, like 2045. Two documentaries in one month. It'll be archived forever. <laughs> That's great. I love it. You'll be ready. So you said that Griffey in the documentary was the most electric player. And it's really hard to compare because, you know, you have Mark McGuire and then you have Sammy Sosa and then you've got the kid, right? And so as a Chicago fan, you know, you're so pulling for Sosa, yeah. but you've got the kid and, you know, it's history. It's the dad and the son playing together. And then just his age was phenomenal. And then he was that spark of energy, energy that you just hadn't seen in baseball. So as far as the home run competition, you know, you're pulling for Sosa, obviously, because with the Cubs, but can you just talk about what, what the difference was with Griffey when you watched him? And do you think that he's the most electric, iconic player that you ever saw? He's one of them. Uh, you know, I got to watch Junior play in Seattle. I worked out there in 93, 94, 95. Uh, he, I was there, Lou Pinello's first year. 
and the year that they finally got to the playoffs and beat the Yankees in 95 and almost went to the World Series. Uh, Lou Pinella, I think, and Ken Griffey Jr. saved baseball in that city. The Mariners were going to move to Tampa. They didn't. Uh, Lou Pinella created an atmosphere and an environment where it was, again, cool to come watch the Mariners play inside the Kingdome, which was this giant uh, concrete sarcophagus in the middle of downtown Seattle. You'd be outside a sunny 72-degree day, and then you'd have to go inside a concrete dome to watch a game. That was a, a, a tough thing. But Griffey could do it all. He could hit for power, hit for average, great defensive player, played hard, played hurt, great smile. He was sort of the antithesis of the uh, baseball code, you know, wearing his hat backwards and all of that kind of stuff, which to me, never that never bothered me in any way, shape or form. Be yourself. And he was great at that. Um, he was just such a dynamic, fun, exciting player and was always straight up with me. I really enjoyed watching him play. People thought he was the guy and Mark McGuire would be the guys that would challenge Roger Maris's record. Um, the reason for that was Sammy Sosa in uh, 1997 didn't have a particularly good year. He was sort of written off and Sammy had some big home run years, but nothing like what we saw in 98. Um, so when Sammy Sosa hit 20 home runs in one month in June, all of a sudden people took notice and said, uh Oh, uh, we got a race on our hands. And, um, Again, for Griffey, the disadvantage he had was, if you'll call it that, he played in Seattle. Beautiful city, great place, wonderful place to watch baseball, great fans out there, but it's a long way away. And if Junior had played in Chicago or St. Louis or New York, he would be probably thought of in even more glowing terms than he is now as a Hall of Famer. And sadly for him, he played so hard when he went to Cincinnati, he kept getting hurt. And had he not, I think he would have been a legitimate 700 or more home run guy. And he might have been the guy, in my estimation, that would have had a great chance to break Hank Aaron's record before Barry Bonds. That's how good he was. Is it more or less challenging for players today to set records and stand out from the crowd with so much going on and little room for error? Do you think it's becoming more difficult to be exceptionally good at the game? Well, I think the great ones are great and they would be great in any era in which they play. I think the thing that I'd like to see players do more of in our sport, I'd like to see them understand that the media is there not to be an impediment to them being successful on the field, but we're trying to help them market themselves and by extension, the team and ourselves. When Mike Trout is the 97th most recognized athlete in America, and he's the greatest player in our game right now, says all you need to know about the state of players and media and marketability. That should never happen. These guys should be on Wheaties boxes. They should be doing commercials all the time. I mean, they should be household names and they're not. And that's unfortunate. And I think so uh, in many cases, not all, uh, we're very lucky in Atlanta. We have great cooperation with our players, but there are places where the players simply feel that their job is to come to the ballpark, prepare to play the game, play the game, answer the three or four questions from the media that they have to answer about the game and then hide somewhere either in the trainer's room and go home. And I'm not here to judge them. I'm not here to say that that's right or wrong, but that's reality. Sometimes writers are there and they're trying to find a story and the players are nowhere to be found either because they're working out or they just don't want to deal with the press. I've always felt that um, it's a big responsibility for the players to talk to the media, not because they like or dislike a writer, but the writer or the broadcaster or the radio announcer is a conduit between the player and the fan. And the fan wants to know about Mark Gardner and they want to know about Randy Johnson and Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Trout. And the only way that we can do that is to have that kind of access. And I think that this year is going to be fascinating to see how that access uh, continues. Obviously, with COVID-19 and all the restrictions that the media is going to have, uh, I think it's going to be the most challenging year ever for us in the media to bring the personalities and the people part of the game 
to the fans. Look, we can all see how many home runs uh, Mike Trout has. Uh, we can all talk about how many strikeouts Max Scherzer has or how many wins the Cubs have. But how do we find out how they did that? What are they feeling? What are they going through? What are their thoughts? Um, if we don't have access to them. Secondly, I, I, I totally admire and applaud the players who are willing to take a stand on social issues. Um, I think baseball is trying needs to do better like we all do with regards to uh, racial inequality and social justice in our country. There was a great article written by Ian Desmond in the, uh, I believe it's in the athletic or the players tribune talking about why he's not playing baseball this year. Uh, I think our sport needs to continue to try to push the envelope and reach out to areas of our society where our sport isn't growing as fast as it should be. Look, we're the sport that integrated. We're the sport that brought Jackie Robinson to the major leagues. We're the sport that welcomed him, not always with open arms, but he was the first guy. And I think that's something that our sport should embrace. I think it's something that the players need to embrace, and I hope that they will. And I hope that people will give them the benefit of the doubt that they are allowed to express and use their great name and their celebrity as a platform for the greater good. And let's have discussions about that. But the only way to do it is to talk. And we can't do it when they're somewhere outside the locker room. Exactly. And that brings such a good point, too, because I feel like it's something that people don't want to talk about because they don't know how to talk about mm -hmm. it. But that only creates more questions and more division and, you know, silences standing alongside the oppressor. So I, I so agree. And I've heard a little bit of the analogy of just if the world could kind of be like a locker room and I've really never been in the locker room setting. So I don't fully know how true that is. But when you just think about the camaraderie of sports and, you know, watching how players communicate with each other is just out of love and just overall well-being for the team. It is something that you wish that people would. Yeah. Yeah. Sports is the great equalizer, right? That ball doesn't know where you're from, doesn't know what your family situation's like, doesn't know where your relatives came. They don't know. It doesn't know any of that. So if you can play, you can play. And our locker room in Atlanta is incredibly welcoming. It's incredibly diverse. It's a great place for us to operate. And we consider ourselves fortunate in that regard. I just hope, and this is my personal feeling, I hope that we as a society can be able to have adult conversations about difficult things without being judged for either our understanding or misunderstanding so that we can learn. We ask questions because we don't know the answers. If we knew the answers, we wouldn't bother to ask. And uh, in so many things, we're uh, really, really busy talking at each other instead of with each other. And until that changes, I think we've got a very, very difficult road ahead of us. Absolutely. Sports are back. And that's really exciting for some people. So what are your thoughts on the 60 games and the way that MLB has handled opening back up the season? Well, uh, I would describe it this way. Otto von Bismarck once said, people who like laws and sausages shouldn't watch them being made. <laughs> I think that would apply to how the owners and the players got to the finish line. I mean, these two sides dragged themselves over barbed wire and broken glass to get to a 60-game schedule. Uh, 60 games is better than no games. Our sport could not afford to go dark for 18 months and not have games on the air. It would really have hurt uh, our sport. And there's already been a lot of damage, as I said, with the way that those negotiations took place in a time of pandemic and unemployment and suffering and the like. That said, I agree with you. I, I think that baseball has a moral imperative as the national pastime to uh, help unite people. And as to my earlier comments, I, I think that's exactly what would happen. People need something to rally around. You have Cal Ripken's jersey behind you. 
I don't know that the Orioles are going to be all that good this year, but the people in Baltimore would probably like to see it's when one of their kids come up and say, hey, man, he's got a chance to be pretty good in a couple of years, or maybe they can win more games, or is Chris Davis going to hit 40 home runs again? All of those things, to your point, take us away from all the bad news and all the negativity that's been surrounding us pretty much since January. Uh, I believe in the healing nature of baseball. I believe that our sport, as I said, has an obligation to play. I love what Adam Silver of the NBA said, and that is, look, the virus is going to be with us for a while. We have to learn how to live with it. And I know that players and owners and the health officials have done everything that they can and will continue to do everything in their power to make the players and the staff and the people that are coming to the ballpark as safe as they possibly can within the parameters of what we know and how to treat these things. There's risk in everything. And I'm not trying to minimize it in any way, shape, or form, but we've got to get back about the business of living. And part of uh, us living as a country is enjoying our sports, enjoying baseball, and thinking about normal, not the new normal. We need to get back to normal. And if baseball can play even a small role in doing that, or me or my colleagues who are broadcasters, I think we're all definitely in favor of it. And personally speaking, I can't wait to get back to work in about three and a half weeks. This is a perfect note to end on, I think. But what is one objective thing that you think fans, broadcasters or media and players should all do during this transition back into play to make it as flawless as possible? Well, be patient. It's going to be unique. It's going to be different. Uh, I know for us as broadcasters, we're going to be broadcasting games off monitors. At least we're not going to travel this year uh, for the road games on television or radio. That's going to be different. There's going to be some hiccups. There are going to be some goof ups along the way. So in a way, it's going to be learning on the fly, just like you guys are. Uh, but we're, we're excited about bringing baseball back. We're excited about talking with the players. And I think the players understand their big responsibility in this. We can't have a player going off to some restaurant because he gets tired of being in his room and coming back and doing something stupid because that could torpedo the whole thing for all of us. So there'll be a great deal of, of uh, personal and, and collective responsibility that I think everybody's aware of. Uh, but more than that, I think let's just enjoy it. Baseball's back, right? It's the greatest game ever invented. Uh, the people that play it love to play it. The owners want it out there. The broadcasters love talking about it. The fans are aching to see it again. I want to see Ronald Acuna hit homers and steal bases. I want to see Freddie Freeman continue his march toward a, a, a Hall of Fame career. I want to see Mike Soroka uh, continue to grow and develop in Atlanta. And I want to see the Braves win a playoff series for the first time in almost 20 years. Uh, we're overdue for a World Series uh, appearance in Atlanta. And as crazy and wacky as 2020 is going to be, there'll be no asterisks for me or for any team that wins the uh, World Series this year. It'll be a, a well-earned championship, and I hope we're the team that wins the last game play. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. We've really loved uh, getting to talk with you and hear a little bit of your story. I live close to Atlanta, so I may drive over and see a game just because I miss baseball. Hopefully we'll have fans in the stands. Don't know about that, but uh, hey, uh, when it happens, it'll be a glorious day for all of us because uh, again, baseball is back and hopefully the fans will be back because uh, you're the folks that we do this for. So uh, hopefully you'll be a big part of it as well. We'll have to catch up with you again after spring training and see how everything's going and if Biff Barf is back. <laughs> well, if he is, if he is, I'll be working at McDonald's to pay the bills. But uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get all 60 games in and have a nice long playoff run, ladies. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.